From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. China's balloon still in the sky and moving into the eastern U.S. This hour, the consequences for U.S.-China policy. Also, NPR's Ron Elving on the week in politics. A Ukrainian photojournalist talks about the images he's captured during a year of war, showing loss and survival. A new look at the wife of Bath, a character six centuries ahead of her time, and Jay Ivey as poets are now up for Grammys. I jumped in with a grin, bumped my chin, scraped my knee, earned my scars, pray for me, it's such a blessing. And first, our newscast. Today is Saturday, February 4, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. A freight train derailed last night in northeastern Ohio, erupting into an ongoing massive blaze. NPR's Amy Held reports officials say at this point nobody has been hurt, but people need to stay out of the area. The train, on its way from Illinois to Pennsylvania, derailed around 9 o'clock last night just before the Pennsylvania state line in a downtown area of East Palestine, Ohio, sparking a huge fire that raged through the night. By daybreak, East Palestine Fire Chief Keith Drabeck said multiple explosions were ongoing, forcing firefighters to leave the scene. Until we can get a better grasp of exactly which cars in that train are burning and what product is burning for the safety of our people, we have pulled them out. Drabik says the air quality remains good, but it's not safe within a mile of the derailment. If you decided to remain in that area after the mandatory evacuations, please stay in your home. If you have to come to East Palestine, don't. Let's stay out of the area. A shelter is open for residents. Amy Held, NPR News. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is among the Republicans criticizing the Biden administration over that Chinese balloon that's been floating over the United States this week. Shut down by whatever means is most likely to achieve a couple of goals. One, to let the Chinese Communist Party know that we're serious. Two, to find out what it is that they are collecting, why it is the case that they have decided to fly this over the United States of America. And finally, to do so in a way that is safe for everyone on the ground. I'm, I'm very confident the United States can do each of those three things. Pompeo spoke to the BBC. For now, the Pentagon has ruled out shooting down the balloon. But the situation has caused a diplomatic crisis. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has postponed a scheduled trip to Beijing this weekend. There's been a prisoner swap between Ukraine and Russia. An aide to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says 116 Ukrainians were freed. A Russian defense official says 63. Three Russian troops were returned. A brief but bitter cold snap has descended on New England this weekend. Emergency officials in Maine say the once-in-a-decade extreme cold plunging temperatures well below zero with wind chills as low as minus 50 degrees in some areas. Maine Public Radio's Patty White reports. Bone-chilling temperatures coupled with high winds are a perfect setup for frostbite, according to Dr. Michael Bauman. He's the chief of emergency medicine at Maine Medical Center in Portland. He says conditions this weekend could put exposed skin at risk for frostbite in as little as five to ten minutes. It's going to be really difficult on exposed skin, so it's going to be very easy to get frostbite this weekend and if you're out for a prolonged period of time to get hypothermia. Bauman says hypothermia is even a risk for people indoors who lack enough heat, especially older adults, babies, and people who use substances. For NPR News, I'm Patty White in Lewiston, Maine. And you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The extreme cold is bearing down on us. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says we are recording record low temperatures in and around Boston. This is the coldest we've been in Boston since 1957. Uh, Negative 10 was our low. Uh, Back in 1957, we were minus 12. So it's the first double-digit negative temperature we've had since then. We've broken records. The record low to beat today was set back in 1886. So needless to say, you know, the temperatures are brutal. And she says with the wind chill, those temperatures create even more dangerous conditions. Noyce says dangerous wind will not diminish until later today. At Logan Airport in Boston, 137 flights are delayed and 38 are canceled. That is by far the most of any major airport in the country. WBUR's Tiziana Deering is sitting in a plane on the tarmac at Logan. And Deering says the pilot is blaming a frozen fuel valve for making them unable to refuel. He mentioned that there are flight, red-eye flights coming in from the West Coast that will not have gates to land at because all these planes are stuck at these gates. And he said, you know, listen, we're frustrated. We'll let you know as soon as we know more. But as of right now, most planes here cannot put fuel in them. WBUR has reached out to Massport for comment. On the commuter rail, the severe weather is being blamed for trains running late on the Lowell the Fairmount and the Newburyport Rockport lines. The MBTA is reporting 20-minute delays on the red line because of a track problem near Braintree. On the orange line, trains are running 20 minutes late because of a switch problem near Oak Grove. If you are worried about the pipes freezing in your home, then Somerville's Director of Water and Sewer, Demetrios Vidalis, has some advice. Perhaps keep a faucet dripping because moving water is less likely to freeze. It takes more to get that to freeze as opposed to standing water. And if you do have your service freeze, don't use open flames to try to defrost your pipes. Use something like a hairdryer. In Somerville, Vidalis has a team on standby to respond to any water main breaks that tend to pop up when the cold weather makes aging pipes more susceptible to breaking. It is nine below zero, and a wind chill warning is in effect until one this afternoon. Sunshine today, windy, and a high somewhere around 18 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mont, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks so much for joining us. That Chinese spy balloon is now moving east. The U.S. says it's a spy craft. China insists it's a civilian research vessel that simply veered off course. Secretary of State Blinken abruptly called off a trip to Beijing and said he'd only go when the time is right. I'm not going to put uh, a date or, or time on that because what we're focused right now is on making sure that this ongoing issue is actually uh, resolved. The first step, as I said is getting the surveillance asset out of our airspace. And Bears Diplomatic Correspondent Michelle Kellerman joins us now. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Nice to be here. 
Sounds like a story out of the Cold War, doesn't it? It really does. Um, and, and that's exactly what this trip was supposed to prevent. Secretary Blinken said he wanted to go to China to prove to the world that the U.S. and China, the two um, major global economic powers, can manage their competition responsibly. But he said China undermined the trip with these actions this week. China's decision to fly a surveillance balloon over the continental United States is both unacceptable and irresponsible. That's what this is about. Um, it's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of international law. And he said that's what he told top Chinese official Wang Yi when he called off the trip yesterday. This trip was supposed to happen this weekend, right? Yeah, I mean, we were planning to fly out last night. We had our visas in hand and our bags sort of packed. Um, uh, so this was very last minute, though. Blinken had been raising concerns with the Chinese about this balloon since Wednesday, when pictures started appearing on social media of this thing way far up in the sky over Montana. Now, the Chinese say it's a civilian research balloon that drifted really far off course. Wang Yi today is blaming the media and U.S. politicians of trying to discredit China. He told Blinken that the U.S. and China need to work together to avoid misjudgments. Um, the secretary says he does plan to reschedule this trip when the conditions are right. But, you know, Scott, that could really take a long time. So how would you judge all this is affecting U.S.-China relations at the moment? Well, it makes it politically harder for Secretary Blinken to get any business done with China. It's more fodder for China hawks in Washington, for sure. Um, on the other hand, it, he could have gone and used this as real leverage with the Chinese. President Xi Jinping is facing you know, his own problems at home, particularly with the economy and his COVID policies. So he has an interest in improving relations with the Biden administration. And remember, Scott, there is just so much on the agenda. There are tensions over Taiwan, trade and tariffs, the war in Ukraine, China's close relations with Russia. The list is very long and now even longer with these alleged spy balloons. And Michelle, let's keep watching the skies. Uh, <laughs> we hear the balloon is moving east, right? Yeah, there were some sightings in Kansas yesterday. Pentagon officials say that this balloon doesn't pose any dangers to Americans on the ground. They they actually thought about shooting it down earlier in the week, but worried that the debris could cause damage. Um, so they're basically just monitoring it now. And by the way, the Pentagon has confirmed reports of another Chinese surveillance balloon over Latin America, but they're not giving any more details about that. NPR's diplomatic correspondent. Balloon correspondent, too, suddenly, <laughs> Michelle Kellerman. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. And Chinese surveillance balloons over the U.S. Uh, weren't something many of us had in our 2023 bingo cards, uh, including NPR's Ron Elving. He usually knows every. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Uh, it's being described as an international incident, but there, there are U.S. political consequences, too, aren't there? Yes, and maybe Chinese domestic political consequences as well. The Pentagon says this is no threat. We know the Chinese have satellites surveilling us all the time, as we have watching them. But this is different because people in Montana and Kansas can see it from their driveways and they feel violated and they can share their feelings and their videos on social media. We know that talk about China has been getting tougher and rising in popularity in both parties in Congress. And it's been a big crowd pleaser for candidates on the campaign trail for a while. Uh, this is only going to add fuel to that fire. And on the Chinese side, 
part of the mystery here is why now? Because China in recent weeks had been seen as dialing down the heat, conducting something of a charm offensive, as some have called it, around the world. Uh, there may be some disagreement about that within the Chinese power structure, so we have to wonder if someone over there just didn't want this Blinken visit to happen just now. Yesterday's job report was head-spinning. 517,000 jobs created in January. Uh, given inflation, it wasn't expected to be nearly that high. What does it tell us about the U.S. economy now? Uh, we've been hearing about all the headwinds the economy was facing for several months now. Uh, the end of COVID stimulation spending by the government, high prices, fuel costs, supply chains. Uh, we've been hearing that recession was all but inevitable. And perhaps it will still come. But it's not in these numbers. Now, if you're an investor who watches bond rates and prices hour by hour, uh, this was not a good report because the Fed will now continue raising interest rates at least a little more for at least a while longer. But if you're looking for a job, or you might be soon, the lowest unemployment rate in more than 50 years has to look pretty good. And it happens just in time for President Biden to deliver his second State of the Union address Tuesday. Ron, uh, what do you expect to hear? A lot about that jobs report, I suspect, uh, just for starters, and also some tough talk toward China, which may have been in the offing anyway. Suspicion toward China may be our one area of bipartisan agreement these days. Uh, beyond that, a lot of praise for the American people and their efforts to overcome COVID and bring the economy back successfully, and some credit claiming by the president for his party as yet another presidential election cycle kicks off. You know, we're less than a year away from the first primary of 2024. Oh, my word. Well, I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure it'll get a little attention uh, on all of our shows. Uh, of course, uh, Republican uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the president have been in discussion over raising the debt ceiling. Um, who's putting the most pressure on the speaker, the president or his own Republicans? Well, right now, it's the House Republicans, and it's a cadre within that group who are determined to make the debt limit a weapon. Uh, they feel they got McCarthy's buy-in for that tactic in exchange for the votes that made him speaker. And now they expect him to spearhead that confrontation, and if he wavers, he may face another round of votes just to keep his job. So Biden can bring pressure to bear, too, of course, but ultimately, McCarthy is more likely to respond to Republicans, and ultimately, not just the ones in the House— but also those in business and finance who traditionally fund the party. Uh, they want limits on spending, too, but they don't want a crisis brought on by a U.S. debt default. As Congress got down to business, it assigned members to committees and also kicked them off some committees, uh, notably voting this week to remove uh, Democratic Representative Ilan Omar of Minnesota from the Foreign Affairs Committee. How unusual is this? It's unusual to see individual members pilloried like this. But it is part of the cycle of revenge that we now see in much of what happens in the House. Uh, Republicans were angry that two of their own were denied committee seats two years ago, and they were angry that Nancy Pelosi would not accept certain Republicans as members of the January 6th investigating committee. So now they have the majority, and they are settling scores. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. A deadline approaches. Chicago's Brookfield Zoo, in which our family has spent happy hours strolling between penguins, zebras, and fellow primates, has a Monday deadline for people to make a $15 contribution, in exchange for which the zoo will name a Madagascar hissing cockroach, quote, in honor of that unspecial or special someone in your life, your ex, for Valentine's Day. On February 14th, they'll 
be put on full display, first names only, on the zoo's cockroach naming board. In full disclosure, our family used to name our daughters Bedafish after some of my wife's past loves. Daniel Craig and Antonio Banderas were outstanding Bedafish. But a hissing cockroach naming board seems unseemly. It's in questionable taste to invite people to call out their exes by enticing them to name a cockroach after them. Amy Dickinson, the famed advice columnist known as Ask Amy, told us, the intent seems to be to insult people. My mother could have bought naming rights to a small army of cockroaches. She was married three times, divorced once, widowed once, and died while married to her third husband. She was charming and funny and did not lack for companionship, which is not to say she didn't get lonely or meet some cads and have some regrets or occasionally hurt someone herself. But I grew to admire how my mother kept regard simmering in her heart for all her exes. She sent cheerful or consoling cards to former loves when she heard they got married or suffered a loss or just to share a joke. And although she might gripe about an ex or tell a funny story at their expense, she spoke well of them all or most all of them to me. As I look back on it now, I think my mother knew I would learn about love from whatever I saw in her. She wanted me to see that even love that sours should include respect and courtesy. The love we've held for someone reflects us, too. Hissing cockroaches, bless them, tend to fall for other hissing cockroaches. Mainly, I believe this name scheme insults and demeans cockroaches, Amy Dickinson added. This ancient class of insects were on this planet millions of years before humans. Surely, they'll get the last laugh. Maybe naming a hissing cockroach for an ex can be seen as a kind of testimonial. The relationship may not last, but we learn, endure, and love all over again. Diana Ross does a great version of this, too. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up, we'll check in with WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce with a look at the latest information about the extreme cold. It is seven below zero at the moment and wind chill warnings in effect until one this afternoon. Sunny and windy today. Highs in the teens. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR is an act of love that supports your commitment to learning and growing. Save 10% at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, opening Saturday. Plan your visit at PEM.org. 
I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The cause of a train derailment northwest of Pittsburgh is unclear, but it sparked a huge fire last night and several explosions in East Palestine, Ohio. There are no reports of casualties, and authorities say they are monitoring air quality. A sixth police officer has been fired by the city of Memphis over the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. The police department says Officer Preston Hemphill violated multiple departmental policies. And New England is in the middle of a cold snap. Boston is among the cities that have opened warming centers where the cold is expected to set records today. National Weather Service says the northeast's highest peak, Mount Washington, saw wind chills dip to 108 degrees below zero early this morning. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. San Francisco holds its annual Lunar New Year Parade later today. And as many prepare to celebrate, the mood is tempered in part by recent mass shootings in California. The massacres in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay involved Asian Americans, both as victims and alleged shooters. Sarah Hosseini from member station KQED reports. San Francisco's Chinatown is decorated with red lanterns and multicolored streamers, but the streets are quieter than they might have been a few years ago before the pandemic took its toll, shuttering shops and spurring increased violence against Asian Americans. William Ng teaches Tai Chi and is visiting this neighborhood where he was born and raised. He has a pink shopping bag full of herbs and incense. Incense is very important for the Lunar Chinese New Year. Because everyone burned incense for good luck and pray to uh, the goddesses and the gods. Ng is 73, and he says during the holiday, there are large family outings, his favorite, as well as community charity fundraisers and a big symbolic birthday party. Everyone's birthday is on that date, so they add on one year for your birthday. It's the year of the rabbit, which is considered rather lucky, says David Lee. He's walking near Portsmouth Square, known locally as Chinatown's living room, showing off his favorite New Year's foods. The roast duck is particularly good at the shop that we're passing, you know, roast pork. Lee is executive director of the Chinese American Voters Education Committee. Many of the other delicacies that we typically don't eat during the year, such as candied fruits and vegetables, the gingers, the candied chestnuts and dates. Last weekend, just across the bay, Oakland celebrated its first Lunar New Year's parade in decades. City resident Carlene Au says hanging out with friends here is helping her stay positive. She's originally from Monterey Park, 
where a mass shooter killed 11 people at an Asian American dance studio last month. It's having that sense of fear again and not wanting to go outside and feeling alone that I really wanted to come out today where I am in Oakland to combat that narrative that it's okay, that joy and community and, you know, is still out there. People are hungry for celebration, but also change, says Jennifer Tran. She's executive director of the National Progressive Vietnamese American Organization. For the Lunar New Year, it's really difficult or actually taboo to talk about anything negative. Everything has to be hopeful, but our next direction has to hold those two intentions, right? Both hope, healing, and actions. Line up for opening dance. If you guys want to take off your heels, you guys can too. Hopeful action is the theme of at least one contestant's campaign for Miss Chinatown USA. During pageant rehearsals this week, Shaolin May of Chicago practiced her pitch. My platform is for racial unity, so it is very relevant to the Asian hate and the racial reckoning across America, and I want to be able to make a difference. All pageant contestants will be part of a float in San Francisco's Lunar New Year Parade this evening. Organizers expect more than one million people to attend this weekend's celebrations. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Hosseini in San Francisco. There's been a lot of attention to the fact that when you turn on your gas stove, it emits pollution that can affect the health of people in your home. But gas cooking stove manufacturers have long known how to make burners that are much more efficient and cleaner. The problem is, stoves with those burners were never offered for sale. That may be about to change. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk joins us. Jeff, thanks very much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. And why did manufacturers develop these cleaner gas burners? You know, it all started more than 40 years ago. Federal regulators were considering a ban on kerosene space heaters because they put out a lot of air pollution into a room. And gas cooking stove makers and gas utilities saw that, and they worried the government might come for them next. So they developed this thing called an infrared burner. It uses 40% uh, less gas and emits 40% less nitrogen dioxide. Now, NO2 is the pollutant that uh, public health experts worry about most when it comes to cooking with gas. Research shows a connection between having a gas stove and childhood asthma, as well as other health problems. If you reduce the pollutants from the burners, that likely would also reduce the risk of illness. Other than the efficiency, what's different about these burners? Well, instead of that familiar blue flame, these infrared gas burners, they look more like a traditional electric burner. They glow red, and you can hardly even see that there's a flame there. I showed this design to Brady Seals at the environmental group RMI, and she said the fact that manufacturers and utilities developed a partial solution for the pollution issue and didn't sell the burners just underscores the need for regulation. You know, the time is long overdue for mandatory performance standards for gas stoves so that we can make sure that they're meeting a health protective levels of pollutants inside our homes. Appliance manufacturers say they're working on voluntary standards to limit nitrogen dioxide from gas stoves now. Jeff, do manufacturers say why they don't offer these cleaner burners? 
You know, one reason is that iconic blue flame. It, it goes away with these infrared burners, and that's a big part of their marking. A lot of gas utilities feature that blue flame in their logo. Mm. Uh, also, these burners are more expensive. Um, they can be harder to clean. Most importantly, though, consumers just haven't demanded a cleaner burner. Uh, but that may be changing now that gas stoves are in the news again. I talked with Frank Johnson. He's at GTI Energy. That's a gas industry research organization. And he says they're working on new burner improvements now. The design of cooking equipment has not changed a lot over time, but it's starting to change now. And it's just going to take time for those to become available. And for gas utilities, the stove is key. It doesn't consume a lot of gas, but it's considered a gateway appliance. People like cooking with gas, and if they already have a gas stove in their house, it's more likely that they'll also burn gas in their furnace, water heater, and clothes dryer. So let me ask you to go back to the regulation issue, because the current debate began in January. member of the Consumer Product Safety Commission talked about banning gas stoves. As we are here now today, does that seem likely? It does not seem likely to me, but the commission is starting on March 1st to look at the available science about health and safety risks. Uh, Commissioner Richard Trumka Jr., the one who mentioned banning gas stoves, said in December that regulations could come fairly quickly. Now, this public request for information is the first step in what could be a long journey towards regulating gas stoves. But I'm here to tell you that with enough public pressure, it doesn't have to be. We could get a regulation on the books before this time next year. Everyone I talked to says that's pretty optimistic, uh, but it would be a boost for climate change advocates who want more Americans to switch from gas to electricity in their homes so that the country can reach its climate change goals. We should know more about how fast that process is going to happen later this year. Uh, and also this week, we learned the Department of Energy is jumping into the gas stove issue. The agency is developing energy efficiency standards. They're quite a bit more stringent. Most stoves sold now wouldn't meet the standard. If those regulations take effect, it wouldn't happen until 2027. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks so much. Thank you. Evgeny Maloletka has won praise for covering a war that's been in the eyes of the world for a year the war in Ukraine. It is his country. Evgeny Maloletka has taken photos for the Associated Press and other outlets, and the Guardian newspaper recently named him Agency Photographer of 2022. A documentary featuring some of his work taken during the siege of Mariupol at the outset of the war last February has just been screened at the Sundance Film Festival. Evgeny Maloletka joins us now from Kiev. Thank you very much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Can you take us back to February 2022? You and a small team made it into Mariupol, gathered just about an hour before the Russian invasion began there. I think the people of Mariupol didn't understand what will happen. And when they realized they lost the time and they were already blocked in the city because it was too dangerous to leave the area and there was no green corridor. And um, that's why so many people, so many children have uh, been killed during this time. Yeah. Do you remember the photo you took of the pregnant woman on a stretcher? Irina Kalinina, it's a normal family from Mariupol, you know. 
husband was working on Azov steel plant and she was working in a shop and they decided to have a baby. And on the last months of the pregnancy, she was in the hospital to take care of that uh, and waiting for uh, give a birth. But unfortunately, you know, that uh, Russian jet who threw the bomb to the hospital killed her and baby as well. Doctors tried, but didn't save their lives. No. She lost uh, too many blood. Can I ask you about another picture? Sure. Little boy, seven years old, who's holding a wooden rifle. Mm -hmm. We're on the outskirts of Chernigiv. That small village with a few, only a few streets. And uh, there was a column uh, of Russian tanks and the Russian trucks full of ammunition was hit by Ukrainians, you know, and destroyed them. And because it was full of uh, ammunition, the explosions were huge. And uh, after liberation, we came to that village and trying to, to see what's going on and how that people were living during this occupation, you know. I found the boy who was playing uh, with his friend playing with a wooden gun and he was passing by through these destroyed russian vehicles full of artillery shells rpgs and etc and through all of this you know children were playing in the army even during the war what do you think the the job of a great photographer like you is in the middle of an active war I don't think that I'm a great photographer, you know. I think I'm a regular photographer who are like in a situation where what we are trying to do is trying to, you know, do the best what we can. I don't think that I'm somewhat special. Uh, no, I'm just like others. And we're, we're doing for this whole period of time the same job, the same as uh, our colleagues. And because we are Ukrainians, we understood what is going on. Maybe we can react faster. But uh, I think it's not about photography, but it's about information. It's very important to give people information in time when it's really needed. And then think what we did, you know, I still not understand. Did we done enough? Because you never know what the impact, and still I don't know what the impact of this. What do you hope people around the world who see your photos will see in your photos? You know, I think my job is to show emotions, yes. Not to ask, but to show people and do them to react somehow. What I see it's only maybe 1% what is happening nowadays because it's impossible to be everywhere in time and to capture the moment. So unfortunately, there is a lot of pain and the picture might to burn something in the brain and to keep remember that image, maybe even it will not stop the war, but it will bring help somehow. Evgeny Maloletka, photojournalist, joining us from 
Kiev. Thank you for sharing your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections, with condo common area consultations as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. And Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, providing guidance and advice to buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. More at elizabethbainhomes.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It is an extremely cold start to Saturday in and around Boston, with the National Weather Service wind chill warning in effect until 1 p.m. For more on these conditions, we are checking in with WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Good morning, Danielle. And first, give us an overview of some of the temperatures in the area this morning. Good morning, Sharon. Oh, record cold temperatures. This is the coldest we've been in Boston since 1957. Uh, Negative 10 was our low. Uh, Back in 1957, we were minus 12. So it's the first double digit negative temperature we've had since then. We've broken records. The record low to beat today was set back in 1886. So needless to say, you know, the temperatures are brutal and that's without the wind factored in. Uh, The wind has been gusting still over 40 miles miles per hour in spots. Overnight, it was howling over 60 in some areas. So it's come down a little bit. And I do anticipate the wind to continue to slowly ease through the day today. But the worst wind chills that we've felt overnight and still this morning will be with us for the next few hours. So exactly how cold did it get overnight and where and and which records did we break? Uh, We broke records in Worcester and Providence and Boston and pretty much all of the major climate sites. We broke a record at Mount Washington. We had a a wind chill value that was, I think it was minus 106 at the summit of Mount Washington. Um, Actual low temperature readings in Massachusetts, um, I think I saw one Ashburnham was minus 20. Minus 20, that's without the wind. So the wind chill values have been running 30 to 40 below zero. So that's why, you know, for several days you've been hearing about this as dangerous cold because this is the type of stuff where, you know, frostbite can set in in as little as 15 or 30 minutes for exposed skin outside. So the dangerous wind chill readings will be with us through late morning. And then it will still be brutally cold, but it will ease a bit as we head into this afternoon. And yeah, remind us of some of those dangers when it gets this cold. You mentioned frostbite. There's also hypothermia. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the winds were so strong overnight that we still have customers without power across New England and Massachusetts. So, uh, you know, that's a scary situation when it gets cold. You know, pipes can freeze. Hopefully those that are without power are dripping water in the faucets. But, you know, I think the key in terms of dressing appropriately is to one, dress in layers and two, cover up the exposed skin. Because while you can dress warmly and it's still going to feel cold out there, at least your skin is not exposed. And that's the big factor with frostbite. If you cover of your exposed skin, uh, you're immune from that, right? It doesn't, you know, contain inanimate objects. It's just those that have your skin out. So you get the ski mask on, you know, you get your hat and your gloves, you're doing okay. Yes, it's still cold, but you take away that frostbite concern um, when you have everything covered up. And what's to come today and tomorrow in terms of temperatures and wind and, you know, basically when will it become more safe and more comfortable to go outside? You know, I think... Safe and comfortable, right? Okay, so safe, I think by midday to afternoon, it's not the minus 30 to 40 that we have this morning. It'll be more like 
you know, zero to minus 10. Still brutal, right? But not that dangerous level. In terms of the wind chill. In terms of the wind chill, you want to be bundled up. Actual temperature this afternoon should come up into probably the lower teens, um, maybe mid-teens. So, you know, it's still cold, but the wind is the key here. It's going to slowly ease through the day today. Uh, There'll still probably be some gusts to 30 miles per hour, um, but it's no longer a damaging wind and, you know, every mile per hour counts in terms of wind chill. So later on today, the wind chill will still probably be around zero at the warmest time of the day. Um, The turnaround tomorrow is going to be remarkable. We're talking about you know, temperatures tomorrow morning already rising through the 20s. And we're going to top out probably like 46 to 48 in Boston. So uh, it's qu- quite a rebound compared to what we have this morning. And and what about people who might be thinking of heading up north to ski? What might they encounter? So northern New England, um, you know, has not been removed from this brutal cold. And it's been record cold as well. Uh, you know, there's going to be some some lift holds, I think, still early today just because of the wind gust. Tomorrow, there'll still be a gusty wind, but turnaround for us as well. The mountains will be in the 30s tomorrow, which is, you know, actually kind of balmy for winter. Um, and in the 40s and 30s for much of next week. So still some great, great skiing to be had. Uh, just don't want to be out there this morning with the conditions as cold as they are. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. Our Giving Tuesday match is happening right now. It'll make your support of WBUR worth 50% more. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. New biography takes a fresh look at a 600-year-old character. Now, sirs, now will I tell you forth my tale. The wife of Bath from the Canterbury Tales. She's influenced authors, artists, and musicians from William Shakespeare to Brazilian samba stars to B.J. Liederman, who writes our theme music. And Pierre's Netta Ulubi has the story. The Wife of Bath is a lot of fun. This song by the Brazilian composer Tom Zay was written in her honor. The Wife of Bath is one of a few dozen characters making a pilgrimage to Canterbury in the famous stories by Geoffrey Chaucer. She stands out. The Wife of Bath loves to drink and gossip. And as I may drink ever wine and ale, I will tell truth of husbands that I've had. Scandalous. That's why Oxford professor Marion Turner wrote a biography of the character. She's extreme and she laughs at herself. She's aware of when she's saying things that are outrageous. Chaucer, says Turner, gave the Wife of Bath more to say than any other character in the Canterbury Tales. She argues with the Bible, she reflects thoughtfully upon her life, and she enjoys sex. That's what makes her the first modern character in all of English literature, Turner argues. Before, women characters were never normal. 
They were usually allegorical, witches or queens. The wife of Bath seems real. She has been married five times. She has worked in the cloth industry. She has travelled all over the known world at that time. She is ordinary in a way that was radical in literature. She tells us about domestic abuse. She tells us about rape. She tells us about what it's like to live in a society in which women are comprehensively silenced. It might seem strange to write a biography of a made-up character, but Marion Turner was thrilled by the chance to research real women who found similar ways to prosper in the Middle Ages. It's astonishing when you find out about women such as, you know, the 15th century Duchess who marries four times and her last husband was a teenager when she was 65, or the woman in London who is twice Lady Mayoress, inherits huge amounts of money, other London women who run businesses as skinners, as blacksmiths, own ships. Financial independence is part of what makes the wife of Bath compelling, but the horniest character in the Canterbury Tales also helped inspire James Joyce's Molly Bloom and other more libidinal interpretations. There were ballads written about her and they were censored. The, the printers were put in prison. This is in the early 17th century. <laughs> Probably the most misogynist response to her across time came in the 1970s when Italian director Pier Paolo Pasolini made the wife of Bath a predatory monster draped in scarlet in his movie version of the Canterbury Tales. Sex with her literally kills her fourth husband. More recently, the wife of Bath was reimagined by novelist Zadie Smith, who wrote her first play based on the character. Let me tell you something. I don't need no permissions or college degrees to speak on her marriage is stressor. I've been married five damn times since I was 19 from my eye damn That's from Smith's recent play, The Wife of Williston, soon to premiere in Boston and New York. When Zadie Smith was young, she and other British students studied the Canterbury Tales intensely. As she said during a 2021 talk at Arizona State University, there was a clear favorite among the stories. Everyone loves The Wife of Both. It's the Rude is one, it's the funniest one. Rude and funny are timeless. And Smith said she feels a certain class allegiance to these very old stories. In the English canon, both Chaucer and Shakespeare, for working class writers in Britain at least, they're our brothers, you know, because they, they speak about the people, they come from the people more or less. My life is my own Bible when it comes to all the woes of married life. That's the late Jamaican-British dub poet Jean Vincent Breeze. She performed her poem, The Wife of Bath in Brixton Market, there in 2009. Though them something in them own way, but them say that true Jesus only go to one wedding in Canaan. In some ways, the long life of the wife of Bath has really just begun. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. Let's put it this way. Dick Coleman was no Lawrence Olivier, or Elvis, or even Tab Hunter, name you might have to look up. Dick Coleman was an actor and singer in the 1950s and 60s who had a few star turns on stage and in sitcoms and recorded a few songs. You, you were born to be loved. The Dick Coleman star never quite rose. He left showbiz, sold high-ticket antiques, and then his life took a most tragic turn. He was murdered together with Stephen Zlotik, his business and life partner, in their Manhattan apartment in 1980. 
Thomas Mallon, who's been praised for his historical novels, including Henry and Clara, Watergate, and Fellow Travelers, has a new novel that centers on that relatively unremembered life. It's called Up With the Sun. Tom Mallon joins us now from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. You've written these acclaimed novels that draw from the lives of people caught up in great events, uh, from presidential assassination to McCarthyism. What drew you to write about Dick Coleman? Well, I remembered the sitcom he had for one year in the 1960s. It was called Hank. And it was pretty preposterous. He played a college drop-in. He was raising his little kid sister. He had no money. And he would disguise himself each week as a student he knew was going to be absent from class so that the professor teaching the class would think that he was that student. But I remembered it because I was so desperate to go to college. And uh, I probably thought uh, some awakening part of me, I would have been 13, I thought Coleman was this appealing, attractive guy. And the murder, when it occurred uh, all those years later, resonated in a strange way with me because uh, Coleman was actually killed on the day that my father was buried. And mm -hmm. um, I was sort of passing through New York while the murder was being planned uh, for that evening. They didn't plan it as a murder. They planned it as a robbery, but it turned into a yeah. murder. Wrote down a phrase you, you, you have at one point. The past had offered him no protection against a loud, last, fatal knock on the door. Makes you think about his murder, but also a concealed life that he led? He was closeted to many people, including his family. But in that era of the late 70s, very early 80s, he was rather flamboyant. You know, he would show up at uh, Broadway openings in his full-length fur coat. And in that sense, he was like many people of that time. He was sort of half in, half out. Uh, narrator for much of the book is a, is a fictional character, Matt Leonetto, a pianist. And how does he come to play a role in telling Dick Coleman's story? Matt is Coleman's complete opposite. Coleman was brassy, pushy, difficult, alienated all kinds of people. And Matt is this sweet-natured, shy fellow who meets Coleman when he's the pianist for Seventeen, a musical adaptation of Booth Tarkington's novel that Coleman was in in 1951. And Matt is probably uh, sick with uh, HIV and AIDS, which is beginning its uh, ravaging of New York. And there's a kind of yin-yang quality uh, to it. Uh, Matt is trying to understand this man he's known for so long who was so difficult and whose way of life, just in terms of brashness, was so different from his own. Very upsetting scene where you, you have Dick Coleman playing the lead in the touring company of how to succeed in business without really trying. Diane Cannon as in real life, was in the production. She obviously became very well-known. And Dick Coleman does something terrible to her. He smashes her finger. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but it was a story that was first told to me quite a number of years ago by Robert Osborne of TCM fame, who was also part of Lucille Ball's Desilu workshop with Coleman in the late 50s. And uh, this was the period... Uh, just before Diane Cannon 
married Cary Grant and uh, there was talk that uh, Cary Grant wanted Coleman to be killed uh, over this. Over smashing her finger. Over smashing the finger. And much of this is fictionalized, but there is a basis for it in reality. And it says something that when I first heard that story about Dick Coleman, um, I didn't really have trouble believing it. One quickly hears enough stories about a kind of nastiness and fraudulence to him. And yet, like any character in fiction, writing novels is always an exercise in empathy. You have to try to understand them. You have to get into their heads. You have to uh, see things from their, literally from their point of view. I want to read something very carefully with you that I've heard over the years from show business figures who happen to be gay particularly of a generation where this wasn't the way uh, many of them lived openly. I've had more than one say to me, well, you know, we're, we're used to acting. That's why we're in show business. Mm -hmm. I think that in some ways uh, it made the masquerade perhaps easier, but I think if they were serious performers in show business, it made life more difficult for them in that, uh, you know, a really serious actor you're trying to do something authentic. And if you know that you're going against authenticity in your own behavior, it's got to sap something from you. It's got to take something out of you. Tom, you are, are suddenly the advocate for a marginal show business figure. Maybe not the advocate, maybe the press agent. <laughs> but uh, yes, I'm sort of uh, trying to you know, put him a bit into the limelight uh, after all of these years. I don't know what he would think of that, you know, because he came from this pushy, struggling show business background where uh, all you want is for them to spell your name right in the papers. I think he might have viewed this, despite the unappetizing aspects of the portrayal, as a kind of afterlife success. But there's no real way that I can know that. Tom Allen's new novel, Up With the Sun. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. The Grammys have a new category this year, Best Spoken Word Poetry Album. Poet Jay Ivey helped create the category and is in the running, though he didn't nominate himself, NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports. As a national trustee for the Recording Academy, Jay Ivey wanted to honor his literary genre. A poet will be bringing home a Grammy, and it'll be the first poet since Maya Angelou. Ivey was nominated for his sixth album, The Poet Who Sat By The Door. Back in high school, I had a teacher named Ms. Argue. What I learned is you're not going to argue with somebody named Ms. Argue. Daily, she wanted to challenge our young minds, so she searched for ways to make us look in the mirror and ask, who are you? One day she gave the class some homework and I was to write a poem when we got home. Reluctant to expose my soul, I had no idea that writing poetry could have my mind so far gone. Writing and performing poetry, often with music, is Jay Ivey's passion. I've seen the superpower that is poetry. I've seen it shift people's lives. I've seen it save lives. I have a quote that says, poetry is the seed of every song ever written. Whether it's somebody rapping or somebody singing or it being spoken, it's a poem there. He says his poems are often about his life as a black man in America, and they begin by listening to his heart and his community. In fact, Listen is the title of one track on his album, which includes singers like Sir the Baptist. Are you listening to the world you see? 
Ivy was born James Ivy Richardson II on the south side of Chicago in 1976. J. Ivy spat rhymes as a teen, and in college he wrote about his family. Ivy says his dad's drug and alcohol abuse meant they didn't see each other for a decade. Not long after they reconnected, his father died. Ivy put that pain into a poem. Dear Dad, these words are being written and spoken because my heart and soul feel broken. I laugh to keep from crying, but I still haven't healed after all of my years of my goofiness and joking. You got me open, hoping this ill feeling will pass, won't last. I wear a mask and my peace won't ask for the truth. Truthfully speaking, the truth hurts, but I'm beyond hurting. That's Ivy pain. performing for HBO Deaf Poetry Jam in 2005. By then, he'd worked his way around open mics and hosted the hottest poetry nights in Chicago. When he performed at the Apollo Theater for Russell Simmons' Deaf Poetry, he got a standing ovation. That was like my first big break. I always describe it as like a sprinter making it to the Olympics. On Deaf Poetry, he also performed another of his poems, Never Let Me Down. Vibrations is what I'm into. Yeah, I need my loop by rent day, but that ain't what gives me the heart of Kunta Kente. Hip-hop artists Kanye West and Jay-Z were so impressed by that performance, they flew Ivy to L.A. to record his poem on a track for the album they were putting together, The College Dropout. To dream in color and in rhyme, so I guess I'm one of a kind in a full house, because whenever I open my heart, my soul, or my mouth, a touch of God rains out. Kanye was like, man, that was that was great. People coming in the studio, getting chills, tears in their eyes. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this moment is actually happening. It was at that recording session that Ivy met singer John Stevens, whose music he admired. So I'm like, oh man, what's up, man? It sounds like that music my, my folks used to listen to back in the day. I was like, man, you sound like one of the legends. I was like, you a legend, you a legend. Matter of fact, that's what I'm going to call you from now on. I'm going to call you the legend. John Legend, as he's been known ever since, is on Ivy's Grammy-nominated album. I keep on running, but my feet don't get tired. The album also features collaborations with musicians Slick Rick, P.J. Morton, his wife singer Tari Ture, and Abiyadun Oyewole, a member of The Last Poets. J.I.B. is probably one of the most honest people I know. Uh, his work is very genuine. Oye Wallace says Ivy is continuing the mission of his 1960s Black Nationalist Poetry Collective. J. Ivy's work is to be heard. It's not to be whispered. It's to be said loud in your face. And he has a certain kind of finesse. Do your actions mirror the things that your spirit already knows? That's poet J. Ivy. And I'm Mandali Del Barco, NPR News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. This is NPR. 
Thanks for starting your weekend with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is seven below zero, and wind chill warnings in effect until one this afternoon in and around Boston. Mostly sunny today and a windy Saturday. Highs in the teens. Temperatures rising into the mid-20s overnight. And then tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Sunday, breezy, highs reaching the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. I'm midday host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, wicked cold all over the Northeast. Randy Sullivan in Maine says he ice fishes all the time in freezing weather, but not today. With negative temperatures like that, it can be tolerable, and when you add the wind to it, that's when it really becomes dangerous. I think I'll probably just stay right next to my wood stove. Oh, that sounds nice. And later, a historic jobs report, but will more hiring lead to more inflation? Arrest made in the California mass shooting, A new number in our lives, the social costs of carbon, but what does it mean? And we have new music from Aya Nakamura. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, February 4, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. East Palestine, Ohio, Fire Chief Keith Drabick is warning of the potential for more explosions. Following last night's derailment of a train carrying hazardous materials, it sparked a huge fire. There have been several explosions. Uh, That's part of the reason we have decided to pull our people out and leave the unmanned ground monitors going. You may still continue to hear those from time to time. East Palestine, Ohio is in uh, northwest of Pittsburgh. Drabig says the train was carrying a variety of products but that it's unclear what's burning. Drabig says air quality is being monitored and an evacuation order within a mile of the scene remains in place this morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken held a phone call with China's top diplomat to tell him he's postponing his trip to China. Blinken canceled the trip after the U.S. discovered a Chinese surveillance balloon floating over Montana. NPR's Emily Fang reports China continues to insist that it's a research balloon that was blown off course. On the call, China's top diplomat Wang Yi repeated his country's explanation that the balloon found above Montana had been blown way off course from its intended research path. Wang said the balloon drama was an accident, that China has said it, quotes, regrets. He said the responsibility of both sides now was to manage the situation, quote, calmly and steadily. 
Yet Wong also criticized U.S. politicians and media for using the balloon to, quote, attack and discredit China. And he noted Blinken's visit was never officially confirmed by either the U.S. or China. Emily Fang, NPR News. The Pentagon has confirmed a second Chinese balloon, this one in the skies over Latin America, but it remains unclear where it was spotted. Republicans, meanwhile, slamming the Biden administration, saying the balloon drifting over the U.S. should be shot down immediately. A sixth police officer has been fired by the city of Memphis over the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. The police department says Officer Preston Hemphill violated multiple departmental policies. Five officers who were previously fired are facing second-degree murder charges. The Nasdaq gained ground for the fifth week in a row. NPR's David Gura reports economic data and company earnings led shares higher. It was a big week for tech earnings. Meta, Facebook's parent company, saw its profits decline last quarter, but it says revenues are on track to rise, and Meta announced a $40 billion stock buyback. On Thursday, its share price soared by more than 20 percent. Apple's quarterly revenue declined, but the iPhone maker saw growth in its services business. The Federal Reserve announced another interest rate hike, this time of a quarter point, and Fed Chair Jerome Powell acknowledged inflation is easing. New jobs numbers on Friday surprised Wall Street. In January, the U.S. added 517,000 jobs, and the unemployment rate dropped slightly to 3.4 percent. David Gura, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The National Weather Service sums up current conditions. This morning it tweeted, historic Arctic outbreak for the modern era. This is the coldest Boston has been since 1957. Low temperature records also have been set in Worcester and in Providence. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the low temperatures are brutal enough, but with the strong wind factored in, it is much worse. But she says temperatures will rise today. Actual temperature this afternoon should come up into probably the lower teens, maybe mid-teens. So, you know, it's still cold, but the wind is the key here. It's going to slowly ease through the day today. There'll still probably be some gusts to 30 miles per hour, but it's no longer a damaging wind. And the cold temperatures are delaying 40 flights and have already canceled 12 other flights at Logan Airport this morning. WBUR's Tiziana Deering called in from the tarmac at Logan. Deering reports her pilot is blaming Massport for even worse delays. They can't fuel the plane because the fuel valve is frozen, and that's true for most of the planes here. And that the vehicles Massport would use to help solve the problem, they didn't keep warm last night, so none of the vehicles are working. And they literally don't have a plan B, and they don't know how they're going to fuel our planes and get us off the ground. During reports, the delays are holding up. Incoming flights, WBUR has reached out to Massport for comment. Last hour, we incorrectly reported there were 137 flight delays at Logan. That was not correct. That was the number of flight delays across the country. There are power outages scattered across the states. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency reports 6,000 outages right now. That's down from 45,000 outages last night. Commuter rail trains are running late because of the weather. Delays are reported on the Fitchburg, Framingham Worcester, Franklin Foxborough, Lowell, and Newberry Rockport lines. And the MBTA says there also are delays on the Red Line and Orange Line. The Sumner Tunnel is 
open this weekend. The usual weekend shutdown for the renovation project has been called off because it is too cold for the work to be done. In other news, contract talks between striking Woburn teachers and the school committee are scheduled to resume tomorrow. A week of negotiations did not lead to an agreement. So far, five days of classes have been canceled for Woburn Public School students. To recap the forecast, a wind chill warning is in effect until 1 this afternoon. It is 7 below zero at the moment. Sunny today, windy, uh, high in the mid-teens. Then the temperature will rise into the mid-20s overnight. And tomorrow, clouds, breezy, and highs in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Employers added more than half a million jobs to the U.S. market last month. January's job gains were the strongest in six months, and the unemployment rate fell to a level that's not been seen since 1969, when the Fifth Dimension topped the charts with this song. The uh, sunny job report comes at an otherwise hairy time for the economy. Consumer spending has been falling in recent months while interest rates are on the rise. NPR's chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley, joins us. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. The Federal Reserve has been been trying to slow down the economy, raising interest rates to bring down inflation. The job market, though, what, hasn't been paying attention. That's right. The job market is the the energizer bunny in this economy. It just keeps going and going month after month. It looked as if it were slowing down a little bit in October and November and December. But then along comes January. It got a second wind and blew past expectations with 517,000 jobs, almost twice as many as the month before. And what might be behind that? There are some seasonal factors that may have inflated that number a little bit, but we also got an annual update from the Labor Department yesterday based on more complete information that shows job growth over the last two years was significantly stronger than initially reported. So even if you discount that big January number, the job market still has a lot of momentum. Uh, At the White House yesterday, President Biden noted that in the 24 months since he took office, the economy's added more than 12 million jobs. That's the strongest two years of job growth in history by a long shot. As my dad used to say, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. All those extra paychecks could give a lift to the economy, but there is also a concern, Scott, that workers' rising wages could make it harder to bring down inflation. And and tell us about rising wages. Wages in January were up about 4.5% from a year ago. Now, that's actually the smallest annual increase since the summer of 2021, so wage growth is cooling off a bit. But wages are still climbing faster than the Federal Reserve is comfortable with. Of course, workers like it when their wages go up, but the Fed is concerned that rising wages could fuel higher prices, and that would force the central bank to push interest rates even higher as it tries to curb inflation. Scott, how are the financial markets reacting? 
You know, it's interesting. Last year, a really strong jobs report like this probably would have caused the stock market to tank because investors would have worried about inflationary effects and how the Fed might respond with rising interest rates. But yesterday, markets pretty much shrugged off this report. Stocks were down a little bit for the day, but both the S&P 500 index and the NASDAQ ended up for the week. Uh, Economist Sarah House of Wells Fargo says maybe investors are just thinking a little bit differently right now. Maybe markets are are seeing good news as as good news again for a change. And at the end of the day, I think the fact that we're still adding so many jobs and that's good for for consumer demand, maybe it's being viewed as good for, for just the economy's overall growth prospects. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell did warn this week that the battle over inflation is not yet won. He says there's still work to do to get prices under control. But here's some more good news. For the last few months, wages have been going up faster than prices, which means those paychecks the president talked about are stretching farther. And that's the opposite of what was happening for much of the last year. NPR's Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. President Biden's State of the Union address is Tuesday night. We'll have live coverage of the speech. And this year, along with the usual broadcast, we're offering a second program in Spanish and English. Join our colleague, A. Martinez, for that bilingual broadcast. The same thoughtful, in-depth analysis. Two options for NPR's special coverage of the 2023 State of the Union address from NPR. Check with your member station for details or go to npr.org. Local and federal law enforcement officers in California's San Joaquin Valley arrested two gang members suspected of the massacre of six people last month. The killing shook the small community of Goshen and surrounding areas in the Central Valley, and those killed included a grandmother, a teenage mother, and her infant son. The execution-style attack was one of three mass shootings that occurred in the state within days of each other. From Goshen, NPR's Eric Westerfeld reports. On Harvest Ave in Goshen, two bouquets of artificial flowers, a candle, and a shot glass filled with coins are all that comprise a makeshift shrine below yellow crime scene tape that blocks off the small street where the massacre occurred. It was just unbelievable. It's just so sad, so tragic. That's 75-year-old Connie Hernandez, who's lived in Goshen for 50 years. Once a vital stop on the Central Pacific Railroad, the town of some 3,000 today consists of a handful of homes, some of them dilapidated, nestled between dusty industrial warehouses for trucking and agriculture. The town's framed by a rail yard to the east and Highway 99 to the west. Mrs. Hernandez knew the family that was killed, especially her friend, 72-year-old Rosie Parras. They attended the same Catholic church here. The night of the murders, Connie Hernandez says she saw and heard the sheriff's cars on Rosie's block. And I said, I wonder who it was, who it is. So I called her up and she didn't answer. And I said, oh no, I hope it's not her. I hope it's not her. It was. The grandmother and great-grandmother was shot in the head, the sheriff said, kneeling by her bed. Following more than two weeks of near-round-the-clock work by local and federal agents, including surveillance and testing of DNA evidence, Friday saw a break in the case. Tulare County Sheriff Mike Boudreau. I would like to announce the arrest of 35-year-old Angel Uriati of Goshen and 25-year-old Noah Beard of Visalia. 
Oriarte was wounded in the shootout with federal ATF agents and is in the hospital. Police say he's expected to recover. The county district attorney's office charged both suspects with six counts of murder and other felonies. At a press conference, the sheriff played chilling security camera video of 16-year-old Elisa Paraz trying to flee the carnage carrying her 10-month-old son, Nicholas. The mom can be seen putting her baby over a metal fence and then trying to climb over to get to safety. Sheriff Boudreaux says both were shot in the head, execution style, in the street, a few feet from the fence. This family was targeted by cold-blooded killers. Two of the victims that night and the shooters, the sheriff says, are members of rival Sereno and Norteño drug and street gangs. Eight prison cells and multiple prisons were searched as part of the investigation. The two arrested Friday, he says, are alleged Norteño members. The suspects and the victims have a long history of gang violence, heavily active in guns, gang violence, gun violence, and narcotics dealings. However, having said that, the motive is not exactly clear at this point. Alyssa Paras had just been awarded full custody of her infant son after he spent months in foster care. The two were reunited just three days before they were murdered. The sheriff and the local DA called for Governor Gavin Newsom to rethink his opposition to capital punishment in light of the Goshen killings. The Democrat imposed a state moratorium on the death penalty in 2019. Meantime, in Goshen, longtime resident Connie Hernandez says she's upset by what she sees as a splintering in what was once a tight-knit community. It used to be that every Sunday we'd go to mom's or grandma's or the comadre and have coffee, and now it's we, sometimes if you call each other once a month, that's a lot. She calls the killings here a wake-up call for everyone. And the message is, you know, get right, do good. Do good to people, to your neighbor. You know, sometimes we lived here a long time, as long as we have, and the people that are across the tracks, we don't, we have no idea who they are. You know, we'll go to the store, and if I don't say hi, how are you, or good morning, they're just doing their own thing, living their own life. So now she says we need to work to know one another again. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Goshen. Wicked cold in New England. Temperatures fell last night between 10 to 20 degrees below zero in much of Maine. Strong winds made it feel much colder. As Murray Carpenter reports from Maine Public Radio, the weather is leading to cancellations and warnings. The National Weather Service was predicting some of the coldest wind chill temperatures in decades for much of Maine. This weekend's going to be wicked cold, probably the coldest we've seen in, in years. Dr. Michael Bauman is the chair of the emergency department at Maine Medical Center in Portland. Coupled with the wind chill, it's going to be really difficult on exposed skin. So it's going to be very easy to get frostbite this weekend. And if you're out for a prolonged period of time, to get hypothermia. The Maine Emergency Management Agency has posted a list of warming centers. And officials are encouraging people to keep pets inside and check on their neighbors. Sam Chamberlain works for Preble Street in Portland, which provides services for unhoused people. Chamberlain is encouraging people to use warming centers, and he's distributing cold weather gear for those who won't. We have a fair supply of sleeping bags and blankets and gloves and hats and clothes that we can distribute to folks that may choose to not enter a warming center this weekend. The weather's causing some Mainers to change their plans, even those who love cold weather. Randy Sullivan says he's a hardcore ice fisherman and he's used to cold weather, but he's not fishing Saturday. With the negative temperatures like that, 
it can be tolerable and when you add the wind to it, that's when it really becomes dangerous. I think I'll probably just stay right next to my wood stove. Some main ski areas are closed due to the cold. And at Camden Snowbowl, the first day of the National Toboggan Championships is canceled. Mark McGowan came up from Connecticut for the race. So we're going to have to change our plans. And now it's going to be bar hopping Friday, bar hopping Saturday, tobogganing on Sunday. Main temperatures are forecast to rebound into the 30s by then. For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and coming up on Weekend Edition, we will check in with WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes to get the latest on the extreme cold. At the moment, it is four below zero in Boston, and a wind chill warning is in effect until one this afternoon. Sunshine today, a windy Saturday, and highs in the teens. Temperatures rising into the mid-20s tonight, and then tomorrow, breezy and highs in the upper 40s. And check back on the news with WBUR again this afternoon. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. See all our choices and send yours today to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSL's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The cause of a train derailment northwest of Pittsburgh is unclear, but it sparked a huge fire last night and led to evacuations in East Palestine, Ohio. Officials say the train was carrying hazardous materials and there is a potential for more explosions. The police department in Memphis, Tennessee, has fired a sixth officer over the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. The department says Officer Preston Hemphill violated multiple policies. And wind chill warnings are up for New England. The National Weather Service calls the cold snap a -a once-in-a-generation event. A state of emergency is in effect in Boston, where the city has opened warming centers. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. From Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Environmental Protection Agency is updating its most important tool for trying to crack down on greenhouse gas emissions. That tool is a single number called the social cost of carbon. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports the new number, number is simultaneously more accurate and an ethics nightmare. 
Imagine trying to add up all the human costs of emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The cost of lost crops and flooded homes and lost wages when people can't safely work outside, plus the cost of climate-related deaths. That is basically how the EPA figures out the social cost of carbon. And right now, the official number is $51. The EPA wants to increase that to $190. Daniel Hemmel is a law professor at New York University. So going from $51 to $190, that's a move in the right direction. The right direction because most climate experts agree that the current number is too low. It underestimates the human cost of greenhouse gas emissions. A higher number would make it easier to do expensive things that cut emissions. For example, replacing all of America's power plants with renewable energy right away. That would be expensive. If the benefits to humanity are paltry, maybe it doesn't make sense. But if the benefits to humanity are really big, then the government should do it. At least, that's the idea. Tama Carlton is a climate economist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She says the social cost of carbon is the single most powerful climate policy tool that the federal government has. We don't have other avenues for large-scale climate policy at the federal level. Um, This is our main tool. But the new number is controversial because of how the EPA is thinking about the lives that are lost from climate change. Noah Kaufman is a climate economist at Columbia University. The question is how to put a value on those deaths. Like a dollar value. Basically, how much is a life worth? Now, the EPA says on its website that they are not putting a dollar amount on human life. Instead, the agency says it, quote, uses estimates of how much people are willing to pay for small reductions in their risks of dying. The EPA declined to answer NPR's questions for this story. Hemmel says, in reality, the EPA's social cost of carbon does put a dollar amount on human lives. You'll hear agencies say we're not valuing lives. Uh, I don't know, they kind of are. They're deciding how much it's worth it to spend in order to save a life. And because climate change is global, they're thinking about lives all around the world for the first time. That's one reason the new social cost of carbon number is higher. But not every death is being counted equally. The EPA uses higher dollar amounts for deaths in higher-income countries and lower dollar amounts for deaths in lower-income countries. Or as Paul Kelleher, a bioethicist at the University of Wisconsin, puts it, The badness of a death from climate change in India is treated as uh, not as bad as exactly the same death if it happened at exactly the same time in the United States. According to the EPA's calculations, one climate-related death in the U.S. has about as much value as nine deaths in India, or five deaths in Ukraine, or 55 deaths in Somalia. Vaibhav Chaturvedi is a climate economist at the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water, an influential climate think tank in New Delhi, India. Anybody in the developing world would uh, kind of probably think in this kind of way. It is inherently inequitable to use this sort of approach. Chaturvedi says the U.S. government should put the same value on every life, morally, but also logically, because America's greenhouse gas emissions endanger people everywhere and especially in low-lying and low-income countries where people are more vulnerable to rising seas and extreme weather. Hemmel, the law professor, agrees. I think we send a problematic message to Americans 
when we use a method for assigning values to lives outside the United States that ends up valuing light-skinned people from the global north more than dark-skinned people from the global south. And there are practical implications as well. A recent study found that if the EPA assigned the same value to all lives, their newly proposed social cost of carbon would approximately double. That would mean that U.S. government will have to enhance the pace of action because now the cost of carbon will be much higher. The social cost will be much higher. And the higher the social cost of carbon, Chaturvedi points out, the more incentive there is for the U.S. to reduce greenhouse gas emissions quickly, which would save more lives around the world. Kelleher is more blunt about the implications of the EPA's choice. Is a grave moral mistake. He says it's just not true that the lives of richer people are worth more. It's important to get it right because these are life and death decisions. Every molecule of carbon dioxide matters. Every ton of carbon dioxide matters. And so um, small changes in these uh, dollar numbers, for example, the social cost of carbon, will make a big difference to who lives, who dies, how good their lives are, how bad their deaths are. The EPA is accepting public comments on its proposed social cost of carbon until February 13th. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Been a turbulent month since Congressman George Santos took office. The New York Republican faces deepening scandals over lies he told before he won his House seat. Many of his constituents say that Santos isn't doing the job of representing them. NPR's Brian Mann reports. Judy Ornstein's standing outside George Santos's district office in Queens, and she's not happy. The front of the building still boasts the name of the last congressman. Well, it sure doesn't look like Congressman Santos' office because it still says Swazi all over it. It's been three months since Santos won the election here, a full month since he was sworn in. But many of his constituents on Long Island and in Queens say he's a no-show. Santos lied about almost everything before taking office, inventing much of his life story, faking professional credentials, and allegedly lying about where he got hundreds of thousands of dollars to fuel his campaign. Now Ornstein says Santos just isn't doing the work. He hasn't been seen in the district, and reaching him has been impossible. I have tried twice to call his office about a matter that I actually need constituent service on. I have a tax question that needs This to is a stark contrast to the way lawmakers usually work. For most House members, especially new ones like Santos, constituent services are a make-or-break priority. Deliver results, results that they can see, results that they can uh, smell, so to speak. That's Congressman Anthony D'Esposito, a freshman Republican from the neighboring district on Long Island. NPR could find no evidence of Santos making any public appearances in his district. D'Esposito, by contrast, has been home constantly visiting a school, a fire department. You know, I've done my best to uh, catch the first flight out of here when, I, when I'm done voting and the, the last flight, you know, back uh, to get to D.C. so that I can spend as much time I ca- as I can in the district. D'Esposito says his office is now fielding calls from constituents in Santos's district, people who say they can't reach Santos or refuse to work with him. Close to 80 percent of the people polled think that he should not be in office. Uh, it's been an absolute distraction for a time where we should be focusing on uh, rolling up our sleeves and getting to work. Every opportunity that there is to do something good, uh, he single-handedly takes the oxygen out of the room. The poll D'Esposito references was released this week by the Siena College Research Institute. Siena's Don Levy says even 71 percent of Republican voters who elected Santos want him to resign. You know, we've rarely seen this dramatic a result within a specific congressional district. There's really no 
meaningful support for Mr. Santos anywhere across his district whatsoever. Santos, who hasn't responded to NPR's interview requests, argues he was elected fairly and intends to get to work serving constituents. He's described his lies as mistakes and embellishments. Here he is speaking last month on Fox News. I made some mistakes and I own up to them. The, and now I want to put this thing past is... me so I can deliver for the American people. But after a month on the job, including numerous appearances on conservative and far-right media outlets, there's no sign New York voters are accepting his apologies. With multiple investigations underway into his business dealings and his campaign finances, Santos may be more of a pariah at home than ever. Under growing pressure, Santos announced this week he will step away from serving on two House committees, further limiting his effectiveness. But so far, Republican leaders in Washington are sticking by him. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy spoke with reporters this week. The voters have elected him. They'll have a voice here in Congress. But Joanne Goldstein, a voter from Great Neck in Santos's district, says she hopes public pressure will grow until Santos is forced out. I think he is someone who has no interest in serving the district. District 3 no longer has a representative. Goldstein says working-class neighborhoods on Long Island and in Queens need help from Washington. She says none of her neighbors believe Santos can do that job. Brian Mann, NPR News. And our thanks to member station WSHU for help with that story. And now it's time for sports. LeBron James closes in on an all-time record. The NBA trade deadline approaches and the Boston Bruins on a tear. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in the house. Cold? Cold? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, New England. Uh, it's only minus 11 here. We're good. Oh, my word. Uh, look, LeBron James is just 63 points away from breaking the NBA's all-time scoring record held by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, help us put the this record into perspective. We're talking about a man who, who came to the NBA right out of high school. Incredible. I think the most incredible thing about LeBron James, I always try to figure out what it is about him that you sort of admire the most. Is it one, the fact that he has absolutely fulfilled every promise? <laughs> People yeah. were talking about him when he was 13 years old. Yeah. And he has essentially done everything that has been asked of him. He's a four-time champion. He's won championships as the lead guy with three different teams, which no other player has ever done. He's The thing about this record, Kareem's record felt like it was unassailable for all those years. And the thing about LeBron is that most times when you get to this point, you've been in the league 20 years. Normally, wow. you are compiling when you hit these all-time numbers. You're, you're not in your prime anymore. You're not a great player, but you've been around long enough, and you're, you're putting up enough numbers to hit the all-time mark. He's still a great player. Yeah, He's not the best player in the league, but in a short series, do you really want to face LeBron James? He's <sighs> still the best player on his team. And, and he's doing it at a level and in a way where... 38-year-old legs aren't supposed to be doing this. He's yeah. just an incredible, incredible player. Uh, Kyrie Irving, once LeBron's teammate in Cleveland, uh, has reportedly asked to be traded from the Brooklyn Nets between not getting vaccinated and making any, you know, Semitic posts. Uh, <laughs> he's had an eventful time in Brooklyn. Uh, trade deadline's Thursday. Where do you see him winding up? Well, where he's... 
the 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 leading candidate is the Lakers that he and LeBron James yeah. are going to be reunited where they won the championship with the with the Cavaliers when Kyrie Irving hit the biggest shot of his and LeBron James's life yep. winning bringing the title home and beating the 73 win Warriors. It's a crazy amount of uh, of bad timing for Kyrie considering that you demand a trade after your team got beat by 43 points by the first place Boston mm. Celtics. But I, mean. I, I understand it from a business standpoint from, from Irving. He can be a free agent at the end of the season. Mm -hmm. He can walk, and I think what he wants is that security. And if you're not going to give me, he only wants $198 million, Scott. He, want, he, want, he wants Scott Simon NPR money, and you know, nobody, oh, not that many people get that. Yeah. Oh. So I have a feeling that... You know, um, someone on some website is going to believe that little joke of yours, but... but... <laughs> Yeah, it's been a really tumultuous year for him, and it's a hard time to. I have a hard time thinking yeah. with everything that's gone down with the Nets that that they're going to buckle here. But maybe they'll hold their ground and say you're not going anywhere. Half a minute left. Bitter cold in the Northeast in Boston, but the Bruins are hot. How great are they? Unbelievable numbers, historical pace. I still have to say, and they're a joy to watch. But I have to say, Scott, that the. the I still look at Tampa Bay as the as the best team until somebody knocks them out. They're the three-time East champs, and they've won the Stanley Cup two out of the last three years. A Boston-Tampa Bay Eastern Conference final is what I'm looking for. But right now, the Bruins are doing things that we have not seen in a very long time. Great hockey this year. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media speaking with us from the great cold Northeast. Have a cup of cocoa on us. <laughs> Take care, my friend. Stay warm, Scott. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for a nice. PlymouthRock.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is, as you may have noticed, extremely cold in and around Boston. For the latest, we check in with WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes. And Danielle, how cold did it get overnight? Minus 10 degrees, Sharon, in Boston. This is the coldest temperature we've had in the city since 1957 when we hit minus 12. Uh, this is the first double-digit negative reading we've had. It breaks a record for the date, set back in 1886. And it's not just Boston. We've broken records across New England with some of this Arctic cold that's come in. And uh, as of now, what are the conditions looking like? Oof, the wind chill is still brutal. So that's been the dangerous factor of this one, right? So the wind overnight was strongest gusting at times over 60 miles per hour in some isolated spots. Now it's down to like the 30 to 40 mile per hour range. So we're getting out of that, uh, you know, damaging wind gust period. But that's creating wind chills that are running 30 to 40 below zero still this morning. For the next few hours, we'll still be kind of in that dangerous zone where frostbite can set in in as little as 15 to 30 minutes if you've got exposed skin and you're outside. Um, so that's kind of the key over the next few hours in terms of the dangerous cold. And after those next few hours, what are temperatures looking like? Uh, I hear tell we may uh, get downright balmy. 
<laughs> it might be, you know, like 15 this afternoon, <laughs> which will feel which will feel nice compared to minus 10. Um, but honestly, you know, the wind will relax a little bit later on today, and that's key too. So we'll be in the teens. You know, we get that in New England. It's just been such a mild winter, obviously. Uh, the wind chill will probably be around zero at the warmest time of the day later on. Um, and then tomorrow, I mean, if you think the teens is warm, we're going to be talking about highs in the mid-40s tomorrow afternoon. Just a remarkable turnaround to above average high temperatures by tomorrow. So with that in mind, do we have a chance of breaking what I think of as the weirdness records? You know, like the the one of them would be the greatest daily range in temperatures. The other is the difference in high temperatures over two days in a row. Oh, you know, that's a great question. I'd have to go back and look at the stats on that. But I can tell you that it's probably one of the top, you know, five or 10 dates in terms of a turnaround. We can get some impressive turnarounds in New England, but uh, this is one of the, the largest I've seen for sure. Now, so far this winter, we really have had not much snow. And aside from this bitter cold snap, it really hasn't been that cold either. So I'm wondering, you know, what what do you experts and your computer models think the rest of the winter in the region could look like? And that's the thing, right? It's still February 4th. And this is climatologically one of the busiest, most active times of winter in New England. Uh, you know, with climate change, we've been finding shorter winters, but also kind of bookending it. So sometimes we get cold, you know, towards the beginning, and then sometimes it extends from February into March. I still think, you know, Obviously, we're going into the 40s tomorrow. Much of next week will be in the 40s, even around 50. We're going to probably have a few more of these cold snaps, maybe not as in, as intense, but they don't last very long. So I still think there's some chance, you know, we, we squeeze out some snow through the end of the month. We get some colder air. But coming off of a top five warmest January um, for all climate sites across southern New England, this is just kind of extreme stuff in terms of the cold, but we're going right back into that above normal pattern and below normal snowfall pattern here for the next couple of weeks. Danielle Noyes, thank you. Thanks, Sharon. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes. And the cold temperatures led to frozen fuel valves at Logan Airport today, and that has led to flight delays this morning. The planes were unable to be refueled until the valves were working again. There are about 6,000 power outages scattered across the state. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency reports that's down from 45,000 outages last night. Commuter rail delays are reported on the Fitchburg, Framingham, Worcester, Franklin, Foxborough, Lowell, and Newburyport, Rockport lines. And the MBTA says trains are running late on the Orange Line and the Red Line because of the weather. It is four below zero in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Melville Charitable Trust. 
committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Jacob Enti envies his sister Belinda because she's done, as their father puts it, what Napoleon could not do. She went to college and law school in the United States and married a wealthy man, Wilder, who was black and from Texas. Well, Jacob longs to come to Virginia and join his wife, Patricia, but green cards are hard to come by. What Napoleon Could Not Do is the title of D.K. Nuro's debut novel. He was born in Ghana, has taught novel writing at the University of Iowa, and is currently curator of special projects at the University Stanley Museum of Art. Mr. Nuro joins us now from Iowa City. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. You have this trio, Jacob, Belinda, brother and sister, and then Wilder. What does living in the U.S. mean to Jacob and Belinda growing up in Ghana? You know, um, when I first conceived of these three characters, I thought about the writer Jelani Cobb, who says that there is a fundamental dissonance in the term African-American. The term represents two feuding ancestries conjoined by a hyphen. And he suggests that perhaps the two words, African and American, be separated by an ellipsis to signify enduring tensions between Black people with immediate African ancestry and those without. Um, I very much believe that my novel resides in the ellipsis. And so for Jacob, being in America is the ultimate goal. The same is true for his sister, Belinda. She has arrived in America, but America has not fully embraced her yet. She keeps getting turned away, turned down for a green card. And despite her best efforts, despite the efforts of her husband, Wilder Thomas, who is 30 years her senior, a Black Vietnam War vet, they keep getting turned down. Now, ultimately, she has to make certain decisions when she comes to a crossroads. She asks herself, how long can I really endure this fight when this you know, the most powerful nation in the world keeps saying no to me. Wilder, whom, by the way, I found a totally enthralling character, a Texan in all ways, including a, a vast gun collection, he sees his country differently, doesn't he? He does. You know, his experience with racism in this country has been both literal and I guess to some degree paranormal. It has shaped him in a way that very much contradicts the desires of his wife and the desires of his wife's brother. He really doesn't understand um, Belinda's desperation to be accepted in America because for him, America will never fully embrace Black bodies. I have to ask the author a blunt question. Do Wilder and Belinda love each other, or is it something else? I do think they grow to love each other. There are two marriages in um, my novel that began as marriages of convenience, mm -hmm. but I do very much believe that they evolve into marriages of real love. 
Belinda tells Wilder, I, I made a point of writing down the phrase at one point, that being American means being able. What does she mean by that? <laughs> there is a certain level of inconvenience in Ghana. And I can speak to this because uh, since having relocated to the U.S. in 1998 at the age of 11, I've had one foot firmly placed in Ghana and one foot firmly placed in the U.S. And that's because my mother has always lived in Ghana. I am still very much a Ghanaian. And I'm also very much tuned into one particular desire of a lot of Ghanaians, which is that they see this inconvenience that is persistent in Ghana. It is difficult to get anything done because it is just an inconvenient place. And America is heaven. And this, while Belinda has also spent a great deal of time in the U.S., she's still very much a Ghanaian woman in certain respects. So when she says being American means being able, really what she's talking about is the ability to rid herself of that inconvenience. Teaching in Iowa, what do you tell a student who comes up to you and says, Professor Nero, how do I write a novel? <laughs> you know, funny you should ask. I'm actually teaching a class on homages. And um, my novel really started as an exercise in appropriation in response to Ian McEwan's masterful novel, Atonement. And Atonement's conceit is that there's a 13-year-old girl, and she observes something between her sister and a young man, which she misinterprets as something more troubling than it really is. Yes, it has real human consequences. It has real human consequences. But what is interesting, this conceit would not work in Ghana, because in Ghana, not only are children not supposed to be listened to, they're certainly not supposed to be believed. So my novel really began in response to that. The questions I was asking myself were, what will the conditions have to be for this conceit to work in Ghana? And that gave rise to a character named Alfred, who is an eight-year-old boy who by necessity... He serves as the interpreter between his deaf and mute parents and the rest of the household. So by necessity, Alfred has to be heard. Alfred has to be believed. Mm. And that is where the novel began. So when students ask me, because I'm teaching this course on homages, I ask them, what is your favorite novel? Or what is your favorite short story? Why? What about it do you love? I unearth these answers out of them, mm -hmm. then we begin to conceive of how they might be able to respond to this beloved story or beloved novel of theirs. Totally personal question. You like Iowa? You know, Iowa City has been so good to me. I don't think I would have been able to complete this novel anywhere else in the world. You know, it's the only place in the world where you walk down the street you tell somebody you are a writer and they just believe you. They don't ask you, what have you published? They don't interrogate you. They make you feel legitimate. 
I could step out of my house and encounter people who made me feel like a legitimate writer without having a single publication to my name truly kept me going. And that is why Iowa City will always and continues to have a very special place in my I mean, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. D.K. Nero's debut novel, What Napoleon Could Not Do. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Doc. When Las Vegas Review-Journal reporter Jeff Gehrman was killed last year, he left behind a legacy and notes on an investigative piece in which he was working. Later today in All Things Considered, Lizzie Johnson, a Washington Post reporter who picked up his investigation, talks about what she found, an alleged Ponzi scheme involving some members of the Mormon Church. You can tune in for that by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Aya Nakamura's music gets played a lot. Billions and billions of streams. This one track called Jaja of her 2018 album, Nakamura, has more than 390 million plays on Spotify alone. She is one of the most popular musicians in the world with a distinct combination of pop, hip-hop, and Afro-Caribbean beats that fill earbuds and sweep dance floors from France to Senegal to the U.S. Now Aya Nakamura has a new album, her fourth. It's called DNK. She joins us now from Paris. Thanks so much for being with us. Bien. We are also joined by Farima Konekito, who is uh, translating our conversation. You perform as Aya Nakamura, but uh, this title, DNK, is kind of a nod to your real family name, Dianoko. Why did you decide to do that? Why this choice? Because when I made this choice, because while I was making this album, I was not necessarily thinking of myself as Aya Nakamura. I was not there as a singer. I was there as Aya Danyoko. And that's what I wanted to convey through this album. We want to listen to because there are lots of Caribbean beats, especially from a dance music genre called Zouk. And, and this album features the acclaimed Zouk star, Kim. Let's listen to a little bit of another, uh, of another song, SMS, where the Zouk beats are particularly prominent. Tell us about the uh, the Zouk and Caribbean uh, influences that we hear on this album. So, from my perspective, I felt like I was going back to my um, my roots because I actually started music um, by you know exploring the genre zouk, and I also this was an ode to my um, adolescent years. I was listening to a lot of music from Kim specifically, who's a superstar for me. So. It was only uh, so natural for me to bring her on this um, on this album. You are a huge international superstar, and and we are very fortunate to to have you on our program. Do you care if you're well known in the United States or not? 
Bah après, euh, pour dire la vérité, je me suis jamais intéressée. Euh... So for me, I, I wasn't necessarily always curious about what's happening in the U.S. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of American artists here and there, but I don't necessarily understand the the language, and so it's you know it didn't necessarily. Um, come to mind to dive into it, but I would like to visit first, maybe, and then you know see. But because my fan base is not necessarily in the U.S., then it's it's not something that I'm you know thinking about always. Let's see, maybe. You've never been to the U.S.? No, jamais. Je suis jamais venu. No, never. I never, I never visited. Yeah, I want to play a, a little bit of a song that you have in here about love and relationships. Tous les jours. Tous les jours. What are you trying to put across about love, relationships? Ce que j'essaie de dire dans cette chanson, c'est plus en rapport avec le désir, on va dire. So through this song, what I'm trying to say, it's like I'm trying to speak more about uh, desire, sex appeal, very romantic aspect of love, and that's what this song is essentially about. People have have put your face on posters in some protests against uh, violence against women in France. What do you think they find in your music? My songs sometimes recall, you know, the emancipation of women, um, freedom, and, you know, the ability to use your voice for you to, um, to liberate yourself, essentially. And so I have a feeling that it's, it's something related to that. And, you know, ultimately, that's what I, I sometimes like to put um, forth in my music. But I, I, I hope that, you know, this is, this is what people take away, because um, at the end of the day, uh, we have responsibilities as women, um, you know, when it comes to music, because I'm thinking about my family, I'm thinking about my, my children, my daughters. Um, I, I want to make sure that I contribute to, um, to that positively. And so I'm, I'm not sure, but I think that's, that's why people use the music and myself as a symbol to push for conversations like that. Yeah. I have to ask, does it undercut that message when, as I don't have to tell you, you were in court with your, your partner? Facing a domestic violence charge. For me personally, I don't think they're related. Um, the message is, is the message. Without trying to judge the case, did you fail to live up to your own message? <laughs> she, she, she's essentially saying that she would rather change um, the topic. Well, we can, we can change the topic, but it's, I mean, is she... I think would agree domestic violence is an important topic, isn't it? Ah, oui. Yes, yes, of course, yes. What do you hope that uh, this album will give to a lot of the people around the world who love your music? Quand j'ai fait cet album, je me sentais bien. When I, uh, I was working on this album, I was feeling good. I was feeling good about myself. And that's the, the, the feelings that I wanted to convey to people. I wanted women and everyone who listens to my music to feel, um, you know, joy, to, to also go through their pains and, and feelings in general that um, sometimes, you know, we, we may be overwhelmed with. So I wanted to provide with um, an album that would help people uh, reflect on their, 
their emotions and while at the same time you know get them to understand hey like it's not that bad sometimes we feel amazing sometimes we feel pain sometimes we feel sad uh, but ultimately all of this is beautiful je pense que cet album donne en tout cas quand on l'écoute Aya Nakamura, her new album, DNK, out now. By the way, our interpreter has been Farima Konekito. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is four below zero in Boston. Stay inside and cozy this morning as you enjoy Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me next at 10 o'clock and Freakonomics is back at 11. Growing up as an immigrant, I often felt like there were these two competing ideas of romantic love or what it should be. There's the classic falling in love at first sight that we celebrate in American pop culture. And then there's this, quote, more practical version that says, love will grow with time as long as your values align. The two ideas felt at odds to a younger me, but the slightly wiser me, the journalist me, knows there's more than one way to understand big, complex ideas. I'm Yasmin Amr, and I'm a reporter at WBUR. We want to keep bringing you new perspectives and tell stories to deepen our understanding of one another. You will help us do that when you send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR. Visit WBUR.org to get started. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.